0: Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. If you'd asked me what my dream was when I was a teenager, I would have told you about the life I'm living right now. The touring, the parties, the girls. He was out of a movie, this guy. The romantic dates, the flowers. It seemed too perfect. It's not that I think I'm better than the other players, but I know I work harder. I still cannot believe the coach cut me for a bad attitude. 11 years I've been working here now. Lately I've been working so hard, just trying to get my next promotion. I miss those rowdy, loud family dinners growing up when I was a kid. It seemed to drive my parents crazy some days with all of us kids. But if they only knew, how bad I want that with my own kids now. It just feels like everyone is in their own world. I sometimes try to have a conversation with my daughter, but she's always on her phone. And Freddie, he's playing his video games non-stop. I mean, I'm guilty. I scroll through Facebook. But... Some days it's the only connecting that I really get. We're in a series called Didn't See It Coming, and we're talking about the five challenges that everyone encounters in life, but no one expects them. And this series is based on a book by Carrie Newhoff called Didn't See It Coming, and we're working through some of the chapters of this book together. And last week, if you were here with us, we started off by talking about cynicism. And we talked about how cynicism grows in our lives and how if we want to overcome cynicism, we need to choose hope, we need to choose trust, to choose to believe. And one of the ways for us to get there is by choosing to stay curious, to by asking more questions, by diving into what can we learn? What can we still discover? Where is there hope? And next week in this series, we're going to be talking about pride. And pride is not just for the narcissists. In fact, we're going to take an angle on pride that may be surprising in how applicable this one is to us. And the week after that, we're going to dive into emptiness Sometimes we work so hard in life we have a goal something we're pushing towards and when we finally get there we stop and we go this is it like this is this was supposed to be grand this was supposed to be great but now this is where we are and so emptiness is something our culture does not talk about often but it's one of the challenges we encounter and then we're going to wrap up the series by talking about burnout. What happens when you burn out, when you hit the end of what you're able to do, and you go, well, what's next? What do I do after this? But in all of these, in all these topics, all these challenges that we're digging into, we're kind of asking two questions. We're saying, are there warning signs? Are there ways to detect these challenges before they get to us, before we reach them? And secondly, what can we do to overcome it? What can we do to get past these challenges, to find health, to find fulfillment, And to find hope. And today, the topic that we're diving into is disconnection. Now, we are about 10 years, uh, about 10 to 12 years into the smartphone generation, where smartphones have become the dominant way, the dominant piece of technology that we all carry with us. And our world is so connected now. Our world is connected in ways that we never would have expected before. But maybe this statement rings true for you. We've never been more connected as a culture yet we've never felt so alone. This is something that medical professionals, psychologists, sociologists, and and medical doctors have been diving into and recognizing that the rates of reported loneliness is growing faster than any other generation before us. In fact, this is something that actually insurance companies put a lot of time into studying because it affects the whole insurance industry. And so a large insurance institute in the U.S. called Sigma Insurance did this massive, long-range, wide study. And they used the UCLA Loneliness Scale, which is widely recognized as a very reputable way of, of recognizing and measuring the loneliness that we feel. And I want to share two quick stats from this study with you. So we get kind of an understanding of the the scope of this, that this isn't just us sometimes that feel this way. 46% of people say they always or sometimes feel alone or left out. It's almost half. See, oftentimes we think, well, I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that feels lonely. I'm the only one that feels disconnected. But the truth is half this room, would say that we always or sometimes feel alone or left out. And then there was another stat that this one struck me a little more. It said 54% of people say that no one knows them well. Now what really makes that interesting is when we realize married people responded to this survey too. Sometimes we have marriages where even in your own relationship with your husband or your wife, you feel like you are not known by them. See, being known is one of the fundamental human desires. It's one of the things that we crave. We look for meaningful relationships. We look for being known by others. We look for connection. It's something all of us look for. This is not just a Christian problem either. This is a human problem. This isn't just specific for in the church. This is global. This is worldwide. This sense of loneliness that is growing. So how did we get here? How did we end up feeling disconnected, lonely, and isolated? Now, there's something that we're very quick to blame. We're very quick to blame this. We're very quick to blame the technology that we carry. And we say, well, that's what's changed in our world the most. Technology has shifted and changed. We are more interconnected through the internet, through our devices, through all of that than ever before. So that must be it. And... The truth is there's some, there's some pieces of that that are interesting. In fact, if you look at some of the, the, the leaders in our technology industries, if you look at someone like Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft, or some of the statements that Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, said before he died, or even the current CEO of Google, have all gone on record saying that they limit their own family's use of technology. They've limited how their kids use technology. And in fact, if you have a, an Android or an iPhone device, and if you have a recent one, you actually have this little piece in your phone called a screen report. Google calls it, I think, digital well being. And it will track how much you use your phone. It'll actually track like how many times you pick it up in a day or how many notifications you get, how many hours you spend on it, what apps you even spend your time on that. And if you want something that kind of opens your eyes, maybe look into that. If you have a smartphone, it's kind of like, oh, that's how much time I spend on it. But we're quick to say technology is the reason we feel alone. But I want to pose a question to us. What if technology is neither all good or all bad? What if technology only amplifies what is already in us? See, if we go back uh, a few hundred years and we go to, let's say, the era where the printing press was invented, the printing press changed our world. It was the most revolutionary technological advancement of its time. In fact, a lot of the advancements in our society would not have been possible without the stepping stone of the printing press. Now, the printing press can be used to write beautiful works of literature, to write plays and art forms and things that inspire us. It can be used to print books of information that share knowledge that are able to advance societies. But at the same time, the printing press was also used to spread propaganda and hate literature and hate speech. And so something like the printing press can be used for good or for evil. So what if our technology today is the same way? What if our technology today is neither all good or all bad? What if it only amplifies what's already in us? See, did technology make you a workaholic? Or was it your choice to pull open your phone and respond to work emails at all hours a day at the dinner table? Did technology end your previous relationship Or were you the one who started a Tinder account and started maybe Snapchatting with that old ex that you uh, knew way back in time ago? Did technology make you do that? Or was it your choice of what you did with technology? See, technology amplifies what's already in us. But it also amplifies what's the best of humanity. In fact, if we look at our world on a global scale right now, global poverty is decreasing, global healthcare standards are increasing, and the biggest shift that's happening is we are able to use technology to address those problems in new and novel ways. Technology can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. So when we talk about disconnection, when we look at this, we might think that ditching our phone we'll solve all of it. If ditching all our technology might solve it, but the problem is, is that is a false flag answer. Because if you get rid of your technology, what's left? You. See, one of the things that we sometimes realize is that out of every problem I've ever had, every mistake I've ever made, every relationship that broke down, every friendship that was wounded, what's the common factor? Me. I've been part of every problem I've ever had. I've been part of every relationship that broke down and drifted away and disappeared. I didn't need technology for that. See, ditching our phone won't solve the problem of disconnection. We have to address the human problem inside it. We have to address what is inside of us first. Because technology will only amplify what's in us already. So what actually has happened What actually, if it's not technology, if relationships were breaking down and ending and people were feeling lonely and disconnected and isolated before technology, what's happening in our world on a larger scale? And I think, and this is kind of a theory, but I think there's some traction to it. And I think as we talk through it, you might agree with me on on one or both of these two points, but I think we've lost two things. We've had the demise of two things that Carrie introduces in the book, and the first one is this. We have, ha- have experienced the demise of genuine conversation. You may have noticed, maybe in your own conversations, that, that the quality of our conversation seems to decrease. We may still have lots of conversations about small talk or functional things or catching up with someone, but the conversations where we talk about an idea or a concept or what we've learned and you wrestle through something together with someone, those kinds of conversations are becoming more infrequent. And in fact, if we go back to that Sigma insurance study from last year. They discovered this statistics that 47% of the people who responded said they did not have at least one extended conversation with anyone on a daily basis. Now they still had conversation, maybe it was around a work thing or maybe it was just about the weather, maybe it was a small talk thing, but an extended conversation where you talk about something deeply where you spend some time getting to know someone else's perspective wasn't happening. So how do we recover this? How do we get back to genuine conversations and finding connection with each other through genuine conversations? Well, I think there's two requirements for this. And the first one is that a genuine conversation happens when we are fully present with each other, when we actually engage on a direct basis with someone. Now, again, if we're going to talk about technology, do you have a conversation with your phone in your hand scrolling through Facebook? Or are you able to set... Our devices aside? Are you able to set aside what the distractions are around you and actually be able to focus and make eye contact with someone? In fact, studies have been showing that the amount of eye contact in a conversation is decreasing. We are getting less comfortable with making eye contact with someone we're speaking to. And that's been happening even before technology became a thing in our society. So we have to choose to be fully present with one another. And What we do when we are fully present with someone is it's actually a statement of value. It's a statement of saying, you matter to me. When you look someone in the eye and you have a conversation with them, you are actually saying, you matter. You may not be actually saying those words, but that's what we're communicating. And so to find genuine connection, we have to come back to genuine conversation. One of the things that means is being fully present with each other in that moment. And the second thing that we can do is to find our genuine connection, find genuine conversations again, is to try asking more questions of understanding. Oftentimes, our conversations have become more like mini monologues, where each of you are making statements back and forth at each other. And this is actually one where I think social media does affect this, that social media has trained us to have conversations this way, where we make statements at each other instead of speaking with each other. But what was interesting in that Sigma study is they actually were able to, one of the things they quantified was, are you a social media user in your scores? And what they discovered was the the UCLA loneliness scale goes from zero being not disconnected or lonely at all, and 60 is fully connected, not lonely at all. So the range is zero to 60. And the average response for someone who did use social media constantly, a heavy user, was 43 points, 43 out of 60 But what was interesting is someone who had never used social media at all scored a 41. Only a two-point distance. That's within a margin of error on any study response. See, social media hasn't actually caused this, but I think social media has reinforced it in us. That we live in a world today where we actually care more about trying to project our perspective and our view and our understanding on someone else than we are about wanting to learn someone else's perspective. And yes, I understand the irony of me being the only one at the front talking right now as we're talking about connection. (laughs) But think about this. When's the last time when someone shared their view on something, you just said, okay, well, what led you to believe that? What led you to that understanding? What did you learn that got you to this point? What's the implication of that on this? What if when you pause and you ask a follow-up question, you choose to do that instead of formulating your response already? See, oftentimes when we listen to someone in the back of our mind, our mind is already working towards our response. Well, I'm going to counter that point. I'm going to agree with that point. I'm going to... We know that we do that. What if you pause? And sometimes here's what happens when you pause. Pause. If someone's explained something and you pause and you let there be a little moment of awkward silence, sometimes they'll open their mouth again. And what they'll actually do without realizing they're doing it is they'll actually take you one step deeper on their response. They'll expand on it. And when we choose to do this with each other, instead of always jumping in to get our word in edgewise, if we let people speak. See, when we dive into listening well, We will start to hear things that no one else hears. Being able to listen is becoming a superpower in our culture today because so few people are able to do it well. And this is what can lead us to a deeper connection. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, he wasn't writing specifically about conversation. He was writing this letter of encouragement to a church that he had planted and he'd been part of, and now he was distant from them. He was actually in jail. He was imprisoned at the time he wrote this. And he's writing to the Philippian church about the attitude he wants them to have. And I think Paul would have applied this to conversation today. When he writes this in Philippians 2 verse 3, he says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And he goes on to talk about how we must have the attitude that Christ had, that even though Christ is sovereign over everything, he chose the position of a slave, he chose to come in as a humble man, to be part of our world, to build a relationship and a connection with humanity, and to bring a new path for us to have a connection to God. But in this verse, in verse 2, verse 3, chapter 2, he says, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And now that doesn't mean that our self-esteem should be in the dumps, but it means do we realize that we could learn from anyone? That every single person we encounter actually has something they could teach us. When we think about that, that changes our conversation. When you sit down with someone, when you have a conversation, when you catch up with a friend, do you ever think in the back of mind, what can I learn from them? What is their experience that I can dive into and see and learn from and see how that will shape and affect me? See, genuine conversation requires this. It requires us not to be selfish, it requires us to be humble, it requires us not be trying to just impress others with what we've done or our stories or our experiences. But thinking of others is better than ourselves so that we can learn. Paul wasn't thinking about conversation, or maybe he was. He was talking about how do we relate as a community, and genuine conversation is part of it. So the second thing, after the demise of genuine conversation is this one. I think our culture has experienced the demise of confession Now, confession might mean different things to you based on your background. You might think that confession means that you go into a closet-sized room and you confess to a priest and you just say, this is everything I've ever done. And the priest absolves your sin, absolves your mistakes, your flaws. Or maybe confession is something where you think, well, no, this is just something we do in prayer one-on-one with God. Or maybe confession, we only think of it in terms of a legal sense, where when someone admits that a crime they've been charged with and they make their confession of saying they are guilty or not guilty. But what is confession? See, confession is, as, is admitting our flaws, admitting our mistakes, admitting our wrongdoings. And confession is something that has become foreign to our world because of that. No one wants to admit where we've made mistakes. No one wants to admit that we've screwed up. No one wants to admit that we've harmed someone. In fact, whenever we're confronted with the fact that we've done something that harmed someone else or something that offended someone else, our human natural response is we want to justify it. We want to be able to either, well, maybe we want to dismiss it first and say, no, 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 I didn't do that. I didn't say that. So we try to dismiss it or we try to justify and say, well, I only said that because of this. And one of the secrets to handling confession well is to understand this, that healthy people treat the reasons as explanations, not justifications. And what Kerry's getting at with that when he says is that when we have a reason for why we did something that harmed someone else, if we justify it, we're actually trying to make it right what we did, even though it harmed someone. We're trying to Shift it and say, This is why, this is my reasoning. But an explanation, an explanation is actually something we can address. If you're able to kind of pause and say, Well, what? Wait a second. When I said this and it offended you, why? Then we're digging to an explanation. And then we can actually learn, maybe maybe we were just callous and we had a bad use of phrase and they interpreted it differently and things kind of spiraled and built. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. No, no, that's not what I meant. That's not how I see you. And we can actually undo that. But it requires this step of confession of admitting that we have done something wrong. Because here's the the little, here's kind of the little line that goes with this. You can't address what you won't confess. We can't address a flaw unless we actually confess and recognize that we did something that was a mistake. We did something that harmed someone. See, confession has kind of two levels to it. And the first level of it is actually a spiritual piece. That when we confess something, there is a spiritual reconciliation that's able to happen between us and God. In fact, a confession can be an acknowledgement wrong. It can also be a declaration of what we believe. Because when we have things that have, that when we have our character flaws, when we have our faults, our things that can actually drive a wedge in our relationship between us and God. And so we can reach this point where we actually feel separate or disconnected from God because we have not confessed and dealt with what we need to confess and deal with. And one of the the lies that we often believe about that is when we feel disconnected, we think, oh, God doesn't love me. But that's actually not the case. Because scripture also says there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Not even our flaws, not even our faults, not even our sin. It doesn't separate us from how much God loves us. But when we have things we've left unconfessed, we are blocking ourselves from being able to receive how deeply God loves us. And so when we confess when we confess our sins, when we confess our wrongdoings, when we confess our harms, we actually are opening ourselves to be able to receive God's love. And that's that first spiritual level of how it addresses us, our relational connection with God. But when we confess to each other, it does the same thing. It restores our relationship with one another. When we're able to admit that what we've done has harmed someone or that, that what this whatever this block was in our relationship, when we admit whatever part of it was ours, we can actually get back to the relationship that we're craving. We can get back to the connection that we're looking for. In fact, in another letter that Paul wrote, we're going to go to, Paul addresses this And he's talking, he has this passage where he's talking about how the church needs to remain united because one of the things that was challenging the church of the first century was that the church was the only place in society where different classes and groups of people would mix. We think that sometimes the 20th century has been the most segregated century in society, but we got nothing on the first century when the society was so class-based and so ethnic-based, and the church was the only organization, the only grouping of people that transcended that. But it caused problems, because you put a whole bunch of people who are very different together in a room, and you're going to find the things you disagree on. That's what happens. And so Paul's writing about how do you remain united with one another? And he writes this in Ephesians 4, verse 2. He says, always be humble. Wait, that came up again. We're going to talk about that next week. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Making allowances for others' faults. Paul isn't saying that because you're a church, because you are united in your love of Jesus and recognizing how deeply God loves us, that you're not going to have problems. He's actually just straight up saying, you are going to have problems. In fact, we wouldn't have our New Testament scriptures if there weren't any problems in the church, because all the letters of the New Testament were written to address problems happening in churches. Sometimes we think, oh, if we just get back to the first century church, everything would be wonderful. Well, no. (laughs) That's why Paul had to write. So he dives into this. How do we make allowances for each other's faults? It means that we recognize that things will happen that we won't like, but how do we work through it? Now, I want to make a disclaimer on this, and I want to make sure this is heard very well. Paul is talking about offenses and unity. He is not talking about abuse. If a relationship has turned abusive in any way, shape, or form, you do not make allowances for that. You find someone safe to talk to, you get somewhere safe, you get to help. You find a counselor. You find a trusted friend. You go to someone who's a mandatory reporter, and you address that. Paul is not making an allowance for abuse. I want to be really clear with that on this passage. He is talking about how do we handle offenses and ways that we upset each other, not abuse. So how do we find connection? How do we find the connection that we yearn for? Well, we said that technology isn't. Always the source of the problem. Technology just amplifies what's in us. We've talked about the demise of two things that we want to bring back. We want to bring back genuine conversation and we want to bring back this piece of confession, of admitting our wrongdoings to each other so that we can work through them and overcome them together. But I want to give you, kind of like we did last week, I want to give you a a, a shortcut. I want to give you a simple practice that can lead us on this. And so remember last week we talked about with cynicism that if you are curious, the curious are never cynics and the cynics are never curious. And so if we choose curiosity, we can defeat cynicism. And for this one, how do we find connection? I want to go to a quote by one of the theological giants of the 20th century, a guy named Dallas Willard. And he was a Christian philosopher and theologian and author. Maybe some of you even heard his name or read his books before. But he was asked one day by John Ortberg, he was at, who is another pastor in the area who was kind of in this mentoring relationship with Dallas. And John Ortberg asked Dallas, what must I do to be spiritually healthy? And the answer that Dallas gave went way beyond just finding spiritual health. It goes to how do we find health in anything? And this is the quote that Dallas said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And when John Ortberg tells this story, He said, I wrote that down in my notebook, and I said, okay, what's next? And Dallas said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So what's hurry? Hurry is when we go from thing to thing, from any moment of our day, always just focusing on what's next. When we rush through a dinner with someone because it's just, oh, we got to get to this thing. And, And us as parents, like, we know this. And I mean, my kids aren't even, like, are in one activity, where you're always like, okay, we got to eat fast because we got hockey practice. We got to eat fast because we got dance. Like we need to find ways that even though there's always going to be things we have to do, but how do we stop and eliminate that hurried to get to the next thing to say, yeah, we got to be somewhere by a certain time. But in this moment now, we're not going to rush through it. Eliminating hurry is eliminating that angst of, I got to be somewhere and do something else. And instead is saying, how do we dwell in the moment with each other, with whoever we're with? See, and this applies to every area of our lives. This applies to our spiritual lives, how we connect with God. We can't hurry our our way through prayer if we want to actually converse and connect with God. On our relationships, you can't hurry your way into a good marriage or even a good friendship. You can't hurry your way into being physically healthy or emotionally healthy either. But when we eliminate hurry from our lives, we give ourselves the space and the margin and the perspective to be able to find these things we're looking for, to find connection, to find health, to find fulfillment. And Kerry sums it up this way in the book. He says, love has a speed and it's slower than you are. When was the last time you felt loved by someone and it was super fast and super quick and they were rushing through a a conversation you don't when you feel loved by someone is when you spend time with them when someone shares with you that you matter in a way that transcends whatever the busyness of whatever's going on is love has a speed and it's slower than we are so if we want to find connection we have to find ways to slow down our pace And we all have busyness things. We all have things that we got to do and we're going to talk about that in the last week of this series on burnout. We're going to talk about how can we avoid burnout because even understanding this starts taking us away from burnout. When we start to eliminate hurry from our lives, we can be present with people, we can find conversations and we can find that connection that all of us yearn and long for. Let me close with praying for us. God, God, you seek such a deep connection with us. The whole reason you created, the whole reason you came, the whole reason we have your word, your scripture to dive into is because you take great joy in revealing yourself to us and connecting with us. And God, you want us to be able to have deep connections with one another. And so Lord, I pray that for us here, for the people listening to the podcast afterwards, that you would truly reveal the depth of how much you want to connect with us to each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand how deep your love is for us. And God, I pray that you would prompt us to spend time digging into conversation instead of grabbing for our phones. I pray that you'd be able to give us the focus to eliminate the distractions, to eliminate the hurry, so that we can be present with one another. And Lord, I pray that in all of this, that we would see in our relationships with each other the way that you are reflected in each person, the way that we see your love for each person that we encounter, that this isn't just about each one of us experiencing your love, but for us to have a perspective that is transformed and changed by your love for other people too. And so, Lord, we ask these things in your name. Would you guide us and lead us And help us find this connection with you and with others that we all crave for. In your name we pray. Amen. So folks, next week we are continuing this series by talking about pride. And even if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I don't have any pride. I don't have anything to deal with. Don't skip next week because it's something that all of us need to hear. So folks, I hope you have a great week and I hope to see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.